Games with Classes interviews. Hi, I'm Christian Haynes. I'm with Gamers with Classes, and I'm joined by Roger Witson. Hi. And our guest for today, Alenda Chang. Hello. Uh, today, we're going to be interviewing Alenda Chang uh, about her book, Playing Nature, Ecology in Video Games, and more generally about the research and work that she does. And Alenda Chang is an associate professor in film and media studies at UC Santa Barbara. She specializes in merging eco-critical theory with the analysis of contemporary media. Her writing has been featured in a number of journals like Kipara and the Journal of Gaming and Virtual Worlds. Uh, and her first book is Playing Nature, which was published by University of Minnesota Press in December 2019. Uh, she's also uh, the co-founder of the digital media studio Wireframe. Uh, thanks for joining us, Alenda. Thank you for having me. It's going to be fun, I think. <laughs> we'll try to make it fun at the very least. <laughs> no pressure. No, yeah, no pressure. this is not yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we start with the most important question, obviously, which is, what are you playing right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I have a seven-year-old, so I, I feel like I now play a lot of things I wouldn't otherwise play. Um, but I think the game I've been playing most recently is actually Hyrule Warriors. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's a really hack and slash sort of like large, massive armies of very dumb opponents. Um, but it's very satisfying for the end of 2020. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, people probably know of it if they've played um, Breath of the Wild, or, you know, the sort of latest Zelda stuff. But it's it's sort of an ancillary title in that whole franchise. Um, so, but it's you know it's a chance to get to know the storyline of some of the characters from Breath of the Wild. But it's not at all an open world game. It's much more about just like defeating hordes of baddies. Um, but anyway, it's been very fun. We basically have completed almost um, ninety nine percent of it, I think. Wow, <laughs> and it's not a small game. No, it isn't. I kept waiting for it to stop, but you know, I feel like I'm really getting my money's worth. <laughs> so, but I've been playing a lot of that, and uh, and then some like smaller indie titles, more for research. Like um, this cute one I just started is called Alba or Alba: A Wildlife Adventure, which is um, by Us Two Games, and it's on. I think it's right now just on Steam and Apple, um, but they're they're thinking of console release. And it's, it takes place in the Mediterranean and you play a little girl who's kind of like going around and documenting nature and trying to save the town's nature reserve from being developed into a luxury hotel. <laughs> that that so, seems right up your alley, research wise. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I actually learned of the title through participating in this climate like group for IGDA, which is the um, International Game Developers Association. So. So I'm, I'm like learning about all these like fun titles related to the environment. So. Oh, that's great. They actually just announced that that's coming to Switch today. Oh, oh. they did? Yeah. I just bought it on Steam, so I guess I'm committed. It's I actually would prefer <laughs> to do it on a console because the mouse sensitivity is, is a little twitchy for me. But uh, anyway. <laughs> and it's a photography game in part, right? Right, right. So that's yeah. the problem is you have to, you know, like catch these really flitty birds and identify them through the use of an app and scan them. And with the mouse, even with the mouse controls way down, it's been a little tough. <laughs> do you I use like a, do you have to use like a, like 
you have to can you use the trackpad or do you have to use like a separate mouse for that it says it has both i guess i should try the trackpad i've been trying the mouse and just like going there's like gnashing my teeth every time the bird flies away before i can <laughs> before i can like center it and zoom yeah. in and all this stuff but that's like real birding right oh, <laughs> this is true so, so that's okay i should celebrate the frustrations <laughs> We, we, have, we have a whole like thing on Gamers with Glasses about birding that just always somehow comes up uncannily in different episodes. <laughs> I, you know? I wouldn't count myself a birder, but yeah, I know I know people who bird who are very avid about it. So, so maybe this cool. is a good chance to ask, uh, is there any ways in which the pandemic has actually altered your sort of gaming habits? And I'm asking in part because mm -hmm. I know for a lot of folks, myself included, that I have actually been attracted more so than before to games that replicate to some degree mm -hmm. a kind of like outdoor experience, um, especially as winter has been coming. So I'm just curious if there's any ways in which like the pandemic has kind of tweaked your gaming. Yeah, um, I think I think that is true for for me as well, and probably why I played um, Animal Crossing New Horizons for you know quite a chunk too earlier in the pandemic, um, and also Breath of the Wild was really appealing for you know mm. for actually we had the game for a long time. My husband played it first and sort of dropped off, and then my son started to play it and. Um, he did one of those things that the Switch is sort of notorious for, which is he just like accidentally wiped his entire game by by logging in on another account profile. And oh. so there was like, there were tears, <laughs> like, you know, like it was just really sad. And so I actually came on board to help him get back to like where he was progress wise. And then I got totally hooked and like took over his game. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it was so appealing because it's just such a beautiful rendition of a world with a lot of environmental like parameters that I love. And so, yeah, I think that's true. But then of course there's Hyrule Warriors, which has its own different like satisfaction for pandemic gaming, <laughs> which is just like, it's like, you know, it's it's like, you know, just feeling um, like, what does McGonagall say? Like blissful productivity. It's like, we're well, not producing anything really, but you yeah. have this feeling that you're doing so much cause you're just like taking stuff off and like mowing things down. <laughs> <laughs> So I think there's some catharsis there too, probably. I'm currently playing the cyberpunk game and I'm having so much catharsis from just driving around, even though I can oh. drive, but just like driving around that the world, right? The city and just like, oh, I can driving. And this is so, <laughs> space, right? Like my husband's playing that right now. I haven't actually, I've like glanced over a few times, but um, yeah, for some reason it's not appealing to me. This, even though I read, I've read a lot of cyberpunk. Um, but it just, I don't know, maybe it's not, maybe it's too gritty for the moment for me. Too gritty, yeah. <laughs> the gritty. discourse around it is, a uh, is tough as well. Yeah. So, I think I've, know, been, I've been predisposed by some of the Twitter conversations I've yeah. seen over it. Yeah. So it's hard to like dissociate. Yeah. Totally. We're, we're, we're even just trying to figure out how exactly we're negotiating it for the website, um, oh, which for yeah. now has mostly been publishing articles on indie cyberpunk games uh, and then sort of trying to ride the hashtags of cyberpunk 2077. Oh, um, so oh, sort of siphoning things off is about the best we've been doing. Yeah, um, I mean, just going into it, you know, realizing all of the things that could be problematic about it, but still, I don't know, still give it a fair shake, I guess. Yeah. So maybe one of the hard questions, 
would be, do you have a favorite game? I say hard because I know I can never come up with a favorite anything. Yeah. I always struggle with that too. And it's, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's more like I have like memorable games, but they're for Mm. different periods of your life or for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I don't think I have a favorite game, but, um, but I have like games of certain moments. Um, and so, you know, there was a period of my life before children when I was like, I spent so many hours playing MMORPGs. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a certain period of my life when it would have been EverQuest, right? Or, or World of Warcraft after that. But I still, I think I have a softer spot for EverQuest because it was first and it was so difficult and you could de-level <laughs> so, which is pretty amazing yeah you were punished for dying you could actually lose a level and then not be able to like wear equipment wow. <laughs> that you had earned <laughs> I, I was gonna say i have ones from like really when i was really young and just starting to play games and so i think um yeah but by objective standards i don't know if they would be considered any good you know like mm. i don't even remember which ultima it was but like it wasn't, it wasn't an online Ultima, but it was like one of those PC box games <laughs> or like, you know, those really old things that you encounter yeah. like wizardry or something. They're memorable for different reasons. I because, really, yeah. I really wish that I had played those old fantasy games because I didn't, I, all I cared about when I was a kid was like really bad Marvel superhero games, like before oh, they really? actually made good ones, like like the X-Men and you couldn't like move them very well because the graphics were so horrible. And I just really invested in all those types of games. So I think it, it, you know, I actually celebrate that because um, even being a game studies scholar, I just think there's like, there's too much of an assumption that we all sort of like play the same things. And Mm. why would we ever want to do that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And like, I think there, I mean, there's not enough acknowledgement that all game scholars have different genealogies. So it's like very clear if you were like the Nintendo kid or if you were like the, in my case, it was more like the Sega Genesis (laughs) kid, (laughs) right? Like we we had our platforms and what we had access to um, and PCs, right? Which is Mm -hmm. like, it's just dying now, so. Yeah. I don't know. So I'm actually happy that you played Marvel games. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want uniformity. I don't want us all to sort of think the same stuff or, you know, think games can only be the one thing. True. Yeah. I mean, I um, think that's... Go ahead, Roger. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So I was just going to say, I think that's one of the maybe interesting aspects about your book, is, which is that you cut a very like specific set of trajectories because you have this focus on ecology. And so it does bring these interesting juxtapositions, these interesting like side-by-sides of games you wouldn't necessarily expect to go together. Um, And, you know, whether it's like Firewatch followed by an ARG, you know, an augmented reality (laughs) game. um, uh, Not not just games, right? Not just games. Like the whole, they're the whole part in the scale chapter about powers of 10, which I was like geeking out about. Yeah, um, I love that film from when I was little. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, um, I guess, you know, I actually, I think share a lot with you all because I was an English professor before I was a film media professor. And um, I studied English literature <clears throat> alongside bio as well as mm-hmm. film. And mm-hmm. so I actually, and I had a super nerdy period about Shakespeare. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I just think, you know, I think, you um, 
I'm very Catholic, not like capital C Catholic, but like, like I try to be really encompassing about media forms or, or maybe I should say I'm media agnostic, but like, um, I think the, I hope the book kind of reflects that, that I'm, I'm sort of thinking across games specifically, but also literature and film and, and new media, like new media forms, right? And also, you know, some of the games I talk about, I really did try to give a nod to the analog because I think that's important. Um, and also um, even games that, that are taking place in other contexts like museums or outside in an arboretum <laughs> um, or, you know, games that you play with microorganisms. And so, mm, yeah, I, yeah and sometimes it's just a gesture because you can't do everything in a book. But um, yeah, like they all kind of exist side by side, you know, for me. Totally. Well, let's just get started and, and see what uh, and um I wanted to ask you, uh, what inspired you particularly to write about video games and nature? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I actually just referenced my, my background in college, but I think that was, that's basically been my life. Um, I kind of joke that I wouldn't be here unless, except for science, because my parents met as like, um, you know, like a TA and instructor, and then they came, they immigrated to the United States to do graduate school in science in the 60s and um even though they went on to do different things um you know i think you know a love for 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 science and animals has been sort of part of my childhood experience like we had all these fish tanks because my dad did fisheries biology and um and i think i also grew up in a time when you could just roam around your neighborhood there was not so much like stranger danger so they talk about free range kids now, like they have to mm. <laughs> compare them to like farm animals, but you know, <laughs> but like, you know, my brother and I, we would literally just like disappear for hours and like go like into the woods as kids. But we were also some of the first users of that early BBS technology and like PCs and like the TRS-80 and the Tandy mm. 1000. We always had the cheap version. We, <laughs> we always had the knockoff version, but you know, we so we were like these early adopters of digital technology and playing a lot of those games on floppy or, or whatever. Um, uh, and I even I I did tech support for Bethesda Softworks in the summer after high school. Wow. <laughs> so I have wow. like these like really weird early experiences in in the industry, and then um, you know, and that was back in the days of Windows DOS. So uh, like I had to teach people how to make boot disks so that their computers could actually run arena elder scrolls or something. <laughs> you had to boot, you had to boot windows. Like it wouldn't start immediately. Right. You, you would turn on your PC and like, you had to have the disk and, yeah. Yeah. and it was basically tricking. And then you had to modify the auto exec.bat file or the config.sys files to trick your computer into thinking it had enough memory to right. run these games. And so, but yeah, so basically it's just like kind of growing up with these two things side by side by the time I got to the academy and then was seeing what was being written in like English about the environment and then seeing mm. what was being written in games. Um, it's like they weren't talking to each other at all. And so I just saw this like obvious low hanging fruit that I was prepared to address, uniquely prepared to address, I guess. Um and just like went for it. It just, you know, was sort of fortuitous. I didn't go to grad school thinking I would write playing nature. I thought I was gonna write about um, nature documentaries because I'm also super nerdily obsessed with those. 
<laughs> but you know, so there are some books about that, and and then I got asked to write an essay, kind of the seed essay for Keyparl, which is games as environmental texts. And then from that realized, you know, I think I, I do want to write this as a contribution to the fields, I guess, um, and not be the definitive work, but just like start the conversation and see like, yeah. what comes after. Well, what, like, just to, just as an aside, like what, um, who's your favorite nature documentarian? Like who is a, who's oh, yeah. a filmmaker that's really awesome to you in that field? Yeah, um, I've actually taught a comparative nature doc class where I was trying to like look at different like cultural perceptions of nature. So I, I have a soft spot for the BBC, which is awful because I know that <laughs> that's such an obvious thing, but I do have a soft spot for like the Attenborough style of documentaries, mm. but, um, but not just that. Like I also like to put it alongside, um, you know, more kind of comedic versions. So I like teach Isabella Rossellini's green porno shorts that she did for <laughs> Sundance, right? Um, or like Norwegian slow TV, you know? So oh. it was like really wide and like indigenous films from Canada. And, and it just like, it was really interesting to see um, these different perspectives. And then the American nature documentaries are like some of the least interesting in some ways because they're so didactic and, mm. and like so celebratory. Um, and you know the feature films. The feature films. I like these ones by the French, like um, Winged Migration and Microcosmos are some of my favorites because they're just really quiet, <laughs> and they use a lot more ambient sound. So anyway. Cool. So this brings up well, a couple, like I think, really important things about your work and about uh, you know working on environmental humanities, environmental humanities. Uh, as a field, which is that, you know, when we're talking about nature, we're not just talking about this thing that's like something you take for granted. It's actually <laughs> historical. There's multiple versions of nature you were even talking about. There's like, there's different natures depending on what kinds of nature documentaries you're talking about. It's all one nature maybe, but it's also <laughs> like our conceptions are so different. Um, and one of the things that obviously we often do when we're trying to talk about nature is we try to say, okay, when we mean nature, we mean that thing that's mm -hmm. not civilization. But part of what your book does really interestingly is call that into question. And you might not be the first person to, you know, call that opposition into question, but you're, I think, one of the first people to really do it, uh, really centering on games and thinking about games. And one of the arguments that I found really provocative here in playing nature was your the way you push back against this idea that, you know, children need to get outdoors, they need to get away from the games, they need to get outdoors. Um, and, you know, that if they get outdoors, it's going to revitalize them and make them into more well-rounded children who will live, you know, more crime-free lives or something. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the rhetoric is. Um, uh, but, you know, I'd love to hear you talk to us a little bit about that because, you know, part of what you were describing when you're, you know, talking about how you grew up was that in fact, these things weren't so opposed that they felt related uh, to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, thanks. I mean, thanks for bringing that up. I think um, uh, we'll have to circle back to the whole tricky nature thing. I could just like, like point to Raymond Williams's keywords book and just like look up his entry on nature. <laughs> <laughs> and which starts by saying like this is the most complex word in the English language, you know. So, um, and I definitely was hesitating, like, oh, do I use this? But I use it 
in, in this way, acknowledging the super complexity behind it. Um, yeah, but I think you're right. It's like a rhetorical thing um, where I would just notice there's this weird similarity between the rhetoric of, of like good parenting, of like, if you want to be a good parent, you send your children away from screens to capital N nature. Um, and a similarity between that kind of rhetoric and the rhetoric of, um, of eco-criticism um, or nature writing, I guess, more generally, which is that, you know, is a similar thing. It's like, stop, stop writing about nature and go outside, <laughs> right? <laughs> or stop taking pictures of nature and just like go, go out and commune with it, right? And, um, and like, but to me, both were sort of missing the value of like culture. And yeah, so just, I was noticing this, this similarity in the rhetoric of like, um, you know, send, send kids or send yourselves out, out of doors and somehow spiritual and, and moral enlightenment shall follow. Mm. <laughs> and that's not to say, I mean, I do actually believe that there is some truth in, in the value of, of spending time away from screens or spending time um, being attentive to your surroundings. But um, I'm also part of these conversations about environmental justice and, and other research circles. And so mm. I've been trained well, through science and technology studies and environmental justice um, to be really suspicious of these like hard and fast or easy lines between like urban, like urban and um, like non-urban environments, you know, like, um, or even between humans and the environment, right? So, um, and I also think it's it's kind of, there are a lot of classist sort of assumptions in, in that kind of assumption that going outdoors will be profitable to you um, spiritually or or intellectually <laughs> because it assumes that for you the outdoors will be safe mm. um, that it will be accessible that it will be financially feasible there are like all these sorts of like embedded assumptions um, and I don't think that's true for a lot of children or just even just a lot of people um, where for instance, there's this author, Carolyn Finney, who has a book um, called Black Faces, White Spaces, which is about how African-Americans, you know, like historically have had a very um, skeptical and almost distrustful relationship of, of nature or the great outdoors, um, you know, where, where those spaces in some ways um, connote elitism or a threat, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, there's, you know, there's all that kind of stuff that's that's problematically baked into those recommendations. Yeah, um, when I was uh, one, when I was younger, like I, I it, it became really associated with masculinity to me because yeah. I hated being in the Boy Scouts. Like I was supposed to be in the Boy oh. Scouts, and my father, when I uh, decided to quit, said, "I don't know how you'll ever be a man now." Oh, <laughs> so yeah, those well, you're vindicated clearly now. <laughs> We'll just sidebar that. <laughs> yeah. Google search that, but um, yeah, seriously, that's that's messed up. Um, I think that's right. There's also these sort of genderings. Um, uh, that goes back to like Teddy Roosevelt and those kinds mm. of figures, right? Who are often celebrated for their environmentalist stance alongside like big game hunting and like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, you know, journeys to darkest Africa for like mm -hmm. safari style hunts. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. So there's, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to unpack. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to be, I also reacted poorly to a grad school friend of mine who had kids at the time suggested that I read this really like popular book by Richard Louvre, which is called um, 
Last Child in the Woods. And the title gives you a sense of like the melancholy that it's like is baked into that. Um, it's like the sense that gated communities and, and TVs and game consoles and anything with a plug um, are taking kids away from these wholesome experiences of nature. And he actually says that anybody born from the 70s onward has nature deficit disorder, which is not in the DSM <laughs> manual. But, you know, it sparked a lot of like really interesting legislation and like um, civic groups, but it, it also really irritated me. And I think, um, yeah, so part of the, the book is partially a response to that. <laughs> you know, it's funny, one of the things that seems a little almost ironic is that for all that walking or hiking in nature is often associated with masculinity uh, in everyday life. Of course, the walking sim, to the contrary, right, the so-called walking sim or walking simulator <laughs> often gets associated with like a lack of masculinity or something, or it's not mm -hmm. like gamer enough, you know, because mm -hmm. you're just walking. Where's the game? You know, <laughs> you, do, you know, and we're talking about games here, um, like What Remains of Edith Finch, Firewatch, which you discuss uh, mm -hmm. in Playing Nature, um, and there's a number of others gone home, uh, which do often have these kinds of emotional resonances that get sometimes culturally coded as quote unquote feminine mm -hmm. right as somehow less than masculine or not masculine and i wonder uh if you might talk a little bit about the significance that you see more generally of walking sims and then for your argument about walking sims because i think you actually take some of what people criticize walking sims for and then actually make them a strength of the genre or at least mm -hmm. um their mm -hmm. value actually lies in some of the things they sometimes get criticized for yeah i think um in in my in my viewpoint, um, like a walking sim game, I think some things that people, most people wouldn't think of as a walking simulator game, in my mind, I actually kind of think of as a walking game, um, like uh, the game Journey by that game company. Mm. Um, I don't think most people would classify that as a walking sim, but I actually do. And it's maybe it's because I had interviewed Genova Chen when he was in the process of making it. And um, he was really influenced by Jason Rohrer's passage which is that really simple five minute game where you're just like experiencing life as like this scrolling <laughs> you know walking from one end of the screen to the other um, in this accordion style frame and um and he so Genova Chen who's the artistic director for that game company wanted to um I think he was trying to generate that same feeling of duration and distance mm. it's like you start out you see this distant mountain and like you go through quite a bit of gameplay and it never seems to be getting much closer. <laughs> and so for me, that's like part of the interest, um, which maybe it, it's like a different approach to walking in games. Um, the walking sims, I also think are, are like Firewatch are, um, are useful because they're adding to the palette of Garen's so I'm being English nerd here, but it's like all the different verbs, <laughs> and, like the ings, everyone's like frantically running to their computer. Like, what is that? <laughs> but like, um, you know, it's, you know, all the ings that we can have in games and it's totally fine to have running and gunning and breaking and destroying, which we could talk about. Um, but can't we also have walking and observing and contemplating or meditating, you know, whatever you want to add to that palette. Um, so I think the, the kind of fears that the like quote unquote 
like hardcore game community seem to have over these games to me seem sort of unnecessary or overblown. <laughs> um, it goes nah. back to that beginning discussion about like games don't need to be this one monolithic thing. And like, um, you know, diversity, you know, begets, uh, begets strength. Yeah, it's kind of like an evolutionary perspective. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's so interesting in a way because like um, we were just talking about uh, the sort of meditative quality, right? Like this kind of like that some people associate with nature, right? That we get to nature mm -hmm. to escape the bustle of the urban street or the urban. Uh, <laughs> I can see the skepticism right? on your face. <laughs> the urban street. <laughs> the urban street. Roger, uh, I think you just became 20 years older somehow. <laughs> the children in the urban street. <laughs> Anyway, like, but what's interesting to me is like, like, uh, games can do this too, right? And I think that's kind of the power of your reading of the walking simulator is that there are those moments in walking simulators, where you can have that kind of experience. I mean, I know I have like, I've, you know, kind of just stared at the beautiful graphics and like, and like, um, experienced <laughs> that sense of flow that sometimes I get in nature and sometimes I get when I'm meditating mm -hmm. and sometimes I get when I'm gaming. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's a, it's, I thought it was a really interesting way to kind of diversify that type of experience that so many people are so mm -hmm. kind of frantically bemoaning about nature, about mm -hmm. the loss of nature. Mm -hmm. And so. I mean, we should definitely talk about the sort of in some ways, there's a conversation to be had about um, about access and and mm. impact on mm -hmm. wild spaces. You know, mm -hmm. it's like if we all it's actually happening right now, right during the pandemic. It's like everybody wants to go to the national parks or to their local state park or whatever, and then there's like feces and like <laughs> overwhelming <laughs> amounts of trash. I mean, this is like why we can't have yeah. nice things, right? It's like. <laughs> But it's like if everybody did realize this like romantic vision of com communing with the outdoors, like there's nothing left to commune mm -hmm. with. And so games in some ways provide a more sustainable and just place for that kind of thing. Um, and I was going to go back to the masculinity, the Firewatch. I love that you actually play as this kind of portly, you know, fire ranger, you know, <laughs> You know, it's like, it, it's not like a classic masculinist wilderness thing at all, right? Like mm. he huffs and puffs and struggles with like, you know, doing aspects of the job anyway. Yeah. Um, speaking of waste, like I think um, one of the parts that I really loved was your entropy chapter, um, particularly where you start talking about the kind of uh, ecological cost of gaming. I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah. And particularly, um, and I'm, not, I'm sort of paraphrasing you. Um, you talked about uh, <laughs> big fish games. There was this infographic that big fish games said that like, uh, that if all Nintendo games ended up in a landfill, it would weigh more than 5,555 statues of Liberty and take 1,453 years to recycle uh, all of the games and consoles they sold. So, so it was just a really fascinating, uh, sort of part of the book, um, why was it important to you to, to talk about waste and to talk about particularly the waste of, of gaming? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it's actually kind of funny because the original subtitle of the book was The Ecology of Video Games. And I know it seems so minor, <laughs> you know, and my editor really decided, kind of made this decision that it should just be in video games. But I was really, it was really both like the, looking not just at like environmental narratives and game content, but also thinking about how games are, game hardware and software is like part of 
this like larger context of supply chains and and waste production and disposal. Um, and I didn't actually think I could write a book about ecology and games without also addressing the sort of of games question. And, um, you know, I didn't want to come off as totally um, like this, the typical environmentalist uh, where I'm holier than thou and I'm, you know, sort of wagging my finger about these terrible things that are happening, but to just show that um, uh, it's, you know, it's not virtual. We, we've always kind of known that, right? <laughs> but, but there are all these other like impacts from like resource, like conflict wars that are happening over these like rare, rare earth elements that go into consoles to like toxic disposal and processing practices for quote unquote recycling. And, um, and I think there's a lot more information about that now in regard to like e-waste in general, but um, it seems like games and game companies have largely been spared a lot of that um, scrutiny. And I think it has a lot to do with the, the sort of rhetoric or um, cultural cachet of play that sort of like shields them from from that kind of analysis and to me that like that that's a problem <laughs> because i think they're um uh well a gaming is in many ways the the industry that pushes the envelope on processing speed or graphics intensity we can name any number of things so it, it should only be sensible so that you would look at those look at these objects, right? <laughs> and look at these processes as part of an environmental evaluation of tech in general. Mm. Um, but then also because we have these, these amazing, like beautiful, compelling, rich environmental content in games, um, it needs to be balanced with this like attention um, to, you know, Nintendo scoring last on the Greenpeace report card <laughs> <laughs> when, when they first started to evaluate game console companies, right? So it's like, that doesn't jive with most people's perception of Nintendo as this super family-friendly, you know, wouldn't hurt a fly kind of giant. Hmm. You know, it, it, it is interesting if you think about just even small things, right? Like the shift to standby modes on consoles, mm -hmm. right? Um, which I have to admit, I, I always go back and forth on the one hand, I'm like, you know, it doesn't seem great for me to just have this constantly on. On the other hand, if I don't, <laughs> it's not going to automatically update itself, you know? <laughs> and then you think about, obviously one person does that, maybe it's not a huge impact, but you're talking about millions of people in the lifespan of a console. Mm -hmm. And then you think about all the Playstations and the Xboxes that are just on standby mode all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. where you think about planned obsolescence of mobile phones. And since mobile phones, in fact, are one of the dominant forces in gaming, even though if you're a quote-unquote gamer, you don't like to talk about that, right? So-called <laughs> casual games. But, you know, so much of what we do with cell phones is just play games on them in between doing other things. Yeah, uh, yeah I do. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And, and they're, you know, I, I want to play my grindstone. Um, uh, and... You know, these have costs. These have costs in terms of everything from mining to uh, waste that goes, you know, that is output from manufacturing. And so it's really interesting to think about that back and forth, that overall ecology, like you're saying, of yeah, here's yeah. what happens with video games, quote unquote, in the wild. And then here's how <laughs> video games represent nature, the wild, et cetera. Um, and we have to think about these different ends of the spectrum, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I also edit this um, or help edit this journal that's um, about environmental media, 
And um, we recently published this piece where the film scholar Laura Marks makes the case for um, uh, comparing high quality streaming video, like video on demands, like Netflix or whatever. Um, she compares that to like eating um, a filet mignon, <laughs> <laughs> right? And then so it's like, uh, I can real, I can like, when I say that, I can just like hear people just like objecting, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's the same kind of idea of like, um, like the resource intensiveness that went into generating this object or this experience. Um, and so it like, it is like polemical and it's a little bit over the top, but it's interesting to think about. And, you know, if you're a media scholar or a games fan, it's something um, to think about. And in my book, I, I don't talk so much about streaming, but I do think about it through like thermodynamics, which is kind of fun because it's like, yeah, disorder exists, waste exists, like mm -hmm. crap exists. <laughs> and also things like heat, which I think um, like Finn Brenton has written that like the work of computation is basically the work of managing heat, right? And you could, we could talk about like Bitcoin mining and <laughs> all this other kind of stuff. But I do think, um, I really am interested in these like new microclimates around play of like people mm. with having all their like doodads and gizmos in a man cave. There's the gender again <laughs> or wherever. And they're, they're like basically like suffocating in these like extreme heat conditions and they need to like crank up, <laughs> crank up the fans or like the air conditioning. And it's just like completely walled off from external reality right? Um, of like climate change and just like everything. It's just like, and so what I see is this like, constant one-upsmanship of technological solutions happening, which is not that far off from saying we need to build like a huge solar shield <laughs> in like the sky to protect the earth from, you know, solar radiation. And, you know, this is, it's like, it's like different scales. <laughs> but it is, it, it's so strange to, you know, we talk about heating and cooling solutions when we're talking about things like graphic cards and then we somehow yep. completely bracket off things like climate change right you, <laughs> you get your new nvidia 3080 or something and you're like well but let's pretend that all of these fans <laughs> are computing globally you know they don't really have an impact on climate change it's just the internet it's just computers <laughs> i know right. it's ridiculous i have i think i have my first computer at, at my work office that has liquid cooling and so the first time I had a computer with that, I was just like so mystified because the, the tubing is black. I was like, how do I know like when to replace this? <laughs> what do you and do like, with it? Like, how does it work? How does liquid cool? I don't know. I've never, I've never even done, it's just, it's, and you know, to me, it takes away like the best part of having a PC, which is like the operability, like being able to open it and swap parts and like do actual things with it. And it's not like Apple where it's like, open this and die, right? Or like void your warranty. Yeah. Um, but like, it's it's gone back to like becoming like totally um, obfuscated, right? Like I have no idea, like the tube is black. I have no idea. Like, so when it starts to like blow steam out, that's when I know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, I really love the part just as an aside, like, um, and I had not thought about this in a while, but like the whole part, again, speaking of masculinity, where you talk about, um, you know, men being nervous about having laptops on their lap for too long. Oh, yeah. Lower their sperm count, right? Like, is Mm -hmm. But that was really fascinating. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I was like, ooh, this would be a fun article to 
times. <laughs> but it's so nice because this thing called toasted skin syndrome was historically, it was associated with women who were like domestic laborers who were near the hearth and they would get like mottled skin from a heat exposure. And now it's like a thing where it's more about like gamers who sit and play with their laptops on their bare skin for months at a time. And there's so much more fear for men because the genitalia are outside the body. Um, so it's just like, for me, it was like this really nice reversal of roles <laughs> in terms of like, you know, fear um, and like vulnerability in regards to games. Yeah. 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 Uh, we, you noted a little bit talking about scale. Um, and so I thought, I thought it was really interesting um, that, and, and I think you made this point. So please, please correct me if I didn't get this right, um, if I read this incorrectly. <laughs> but I think you made the point that games, uh, perhaps even more than films or books, are particularly suited to help us understand sort of the scale of climate change um, and why and what is it about games that gets us to think about scale? Yeah, I think um, it's actually not even just about scale, but just I think in general that I do see games as um, uh, like a particularly powerful medium for communicating environmental issues. Um, and one of the reasons is, is, is um, well, okay. So one thing is about sort of complexity and the ability of these, especially computationally based games, but not just computationally like digital games to represent um, systems in a way that really embodies the complexity of real world systems, right? Mm -hmm. And and there's, to me, there's always been this like fundamental similarity between what scientists do and what game players do in the sense of like you, when you try to master a game, you're really just trying to figure out what the system is and how it works and what influences what and what, what the relations are between um, things in that system. Um, and, but then games, um, unlike science, science in the world, are ethically unencumbered in a really useful way. <laughs> so, you know, you could do things in games that you couldn't do um, in, in real life, like destroy entire ecosystems <laughs> right? and see what happens. Fun, right? And then, and so part of it is like the sort of logical side and the other side is more about affect. And so um, I'm really influenced actually in this regard by Nicole Seymour's work. Um, she's written a lot about like, um, queer theory and eco-critical theory, and most recently had this book called Bad Environmentalism. Mm. And it's all about how um, traditional environmental affect is really off-putting because it is this very moralizing um, uh, sort of elitist thing. Um, and so, you know, she's pointing out to, you know, that there are a lot of other affects that could be really useful in addressing these issues that aren't about shame or or fear or guilt, <laughs> but are rather about irony and irreverence mm. and campiness. Um, and and it, there's a lot of resonance between those affects and games, I think, um, because games are also allowing you to indulge in like the quote unquote bad affect. <laughs> um, yeah. Right, but that could be, I think, ultimately more activating or like more useful for mm. like, raising consciousness or whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing, right? Cool. Yeah, no, that's a great I mean, sort of way you put that is that games can help us bring awareness to environments. But one of the things you say in your book, of course, is that we tend to play a lot of games that 
are sort of almost unaware of their own environments, right? There are exceptions, uh, plenty of exceptions. I think of, for example, the ecology, uh, the bespoke ecology in Red Dead Redemption 2, for mm -hmm. example, all, and they sort of, they were boasting constantly about the number of species they have. I think Red Dead Online <laughs> just added a naturalist career path uh, <laughs> um, that entirely revolves around just observing uh, mm -hmm. animals in the game rather than hunting them. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you talk about a couple of different ways in your book that games can, in fact, raise environmental awareness, both of their own environments, the environments you play in in games, the settings, uh, as well as uh, the environment in which we live, our ecosystems, etc. Um, and, you know, one of the things you've already talked about just a little bit that I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about is destructibility, right? Uh -huh. the, I think in the previous generation, or now I guess two generations ago, everything was about destructibility, <laughs> right? They were every sort of game developer, especially first-person <laughs> shooters, I want to say and third person yeah, shooters yeah. were bragging about how destructible their environments were and to the point where crackdown three if i remember incorrectly <laughs> was talking about how they were going to use cloud computing to destroy the environment <laughs> they dropped that before the game came out um but so i'd love to hear you talk about you know what you think about destructibility um does that raise awareness is it just a kind of like shortcut to not raise awareness right yeah i think um yeah i was really trying in the chapter on collapse, like to um, not just conclude that like destroying environments and games is bad. Cause I think that kind of plays into the old media effects paradigm where like play, if you play a violent video game you're gonna become like this armed so psychopath that goes out into the world and reenacts, you know without any sort of veil what happened in the game. Um, so you know, I was trying to sort of like work my way toward the sense that um, even doing bad things to environments and games could have um, could have that effect of making you more aware. Um, and it can also be fun at the same time. I think um, there there is a role for pleasure to to be there in environmental play. And I don't think, I mean, from what I can tell from talking to designers and um, you know, people who want to make an impact with quote unquote serious games, a lot of those games are just, um, they're very literal about like saving the environment. Like, um, like, you know, this is a game where you recycle, like you learn to sort things. And it's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think like, to me, it's like, um, I want to reach the people that don't care <laughs> about that in the first place. Right. <laughs> Right. And how do you reach the people that, you know, like, let's say a climate denier or something, um, how do you reach them? And to me, um, an obvious way to do that would be through games where you do get to indulge in like bad environmental play or questionable environmental play. But to sneakily, I don't know, it's not really like a bait and switch, but like to um, to use that to to um, engender reflection. And I do think a lot of the dystopic games like Frostpunk or that, that get mentioned um, or like um, permadeath games, those kinds of things do really make you think about like the vulnerability of your life in relation mm -hmm. to an environment or about resources. Like even just having a world where resources are finite rather than just like infinite is a huge decision, design decision and huge gameplay has huge gameplay impact, I think. so. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, they're not going to wake up and be Rachel Carson like the next day, right? We can't overstate those kinds of things. But, um, but I do think uh, it hopefully does expand your perception of like what is possible um, or like who matters. <laughs> that's, right? that's great. Yeah, one of my favorite games is Dead Space 2. And part of Ooh. it has to do with that overarching narrative of like, Overexploiting the moon of Jupiter, I believe it is. Um, it's a Titan, and but at the same time, it's also a game about you know managing finite resources, and especially if you up the difficulty level. One of the most sort of important things that it does is decrease the amount of ammo you're going to stumble across. So you're just yeah. like cherishing these things, but it does give you mm -hmm. a sense of scarcity in it, and you get these occasional moments where you get these vistas on this kind of you know, just destroyed uh, lunar landscape that, you know, you really do get a sense of the environment there and the environment and yourself as something And you're tied in the tide of sanity. Exa <laughs> exactly. You're, you're very loose tide of sanity. Uh, poor Isaac. Uh, uh, but that maybe, uh, you know, another way of thinking about this that you propose, though, is that we also don't just have to think about our relationship to the environment in terms of humans. And you have a great chapter on the non-human um, in the book. And we were actually recently on the our podcast, uh, Gamers with Glasses show, talking about Might and Delights games. Uh, oh, I our, saw that. Yeah, yeah. Our, <laughs> our editor, Nate Schmidt, our, our wonderful Nate, who I think is partially responsible for us talking about birding on some of the shows. <laughs> with, uh, John Ferrari. And, um, and mother badgers and mother lynxes. And that exactly. He couldn't stop talking about badgers, and uh, <laughs> that's a really yeah. traumatic. It's a traumatic game, actually, because it's almost impossible to survive with all of your babies. And that's shelter, right? That's shelter. Yeah. Yeah, but you know this this notion of playing as a non-human like character. It's not like it's not common in games, but it's not uncommon either. Whether it's Okami or right. my, many of Might and Delight's games, there are. There's an MMO that you talk about in which you're playing deer, uh, the name of which is escaping me at the moment, oh, but you yeah. can only emote. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the yeah, that, forest. Yeah. yeah uh, what do you think, what is that stake for you, I guess, in those non-human perspectives? Is it about imagining what it would be like to inhabit nature differently? Is it about empathy towards creatures that are not ourselves and you know right. yeah. um yeah. what's at stake for you with that and you know maybe you could talk about a specific example that you think really highlights that mm -hmm. yeah i mean this this kind of you know borders on discussions that have been had about empathy games um and the limitations of 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 playing like dysphoria or something like that um, in the mm. sense that you can't literally inhabit like a transgender woman's shoes <laughs> if you're not that that person, right? But um, but I do think there is something useful um, in, in the sort of thought experiments that happen when you're playing um, as a badger or, or whatever it is. Um, and it has a lot to do with um, like what animal studies scholars are into um, largely, which is like a philosophical, just total ontological decentering of the human, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that we're not like just the king on top of the, you know, um, evolutionary pyramid or the, the end of the great chain of being or whatever it is. Um, and so I think that sort of leveling um, that happens when you do play as a non-human is, is useful. 
And I think um, it's not a really big stretch to play like a non-human avatar that's like an animal or like an animal, you know, resembling avatar. Um, the more, I think, extreme examples are where you play um, like plants or like a geological entity. I think that's mm. that's tougher. Like think of Dave O'Reilly's games. Um, and I think um, those are probably not going to be um, all that popular. <laughs> but for like some, some segment of players, I think it will scratch an, an interesting itch. Um, and I think um, a specific example I, I didn't write about in the book, but is um, in an article is, um, uh, oh my goodness, why is my brain blanking? Luxuria Superbia. <laughs> Have you played that? <laughs> it's an iPad game. Uh, well, I guess it, it was originally for the, um, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to say it. The Ouya? How do you say that? The micro console Ouya? O U Y A. Oh wow! I had totally forgotten about that. <laughs> that died. Yeah. So I was it's so like excited it. about that. <laughs> I don't even That's know why how to I say died. It. I don't even know how to say it. Yeah, exactly. The something console, um, but it's like it's a game where you basically are pleasuring plants, like you're like a pollinator, and you're supposed to. It's designed for like multiple hands and fingers, and you have to like stroke the plant. And it like whisp it whispers like sweet nothings to you. It's really uncomfortable. It's like a fabulous, it's like a fabulous game to play with students because everybody's just like blushing and they don't know like where to look. And <laughs> you thought <laughs> cyberpunk was lewd. <laughs> it's like you build this temple of love by like, you know, have making like a whole like range of like a garden full of flowers happy. Um, and so it's just, you know, I think. To me, that one was really interesting because it, it was um, not just like, let's embody this animal in its life cycle, but like, let's take seriously, <laughs> like, like the independence and like uh, playful and pleasurable properties of other species, mm. right? Like, who knows? Like, we don't know. Maybe plants do get a kick out of certain things. And <laughs> it's not that far from actually what happens with, um, you know, like, um, artificial insemination of flowers that happens in agriculture now, like where humans by hand are having to pollinate orchards full of flowers, you know, so. Mm. <laughs> it brings up an important distinction actually when we're talking about games, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, you know, as you talk about in the book, it's in fact, you know, there are companies who are entirely devoted to, for example, doing the graphics modeling for trees. And they, you know, spend a lot of time and there's a lot of money involved with making sure you get these trees that have a lot of variety uh, and that look really complex and look different. But on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean they act like trees or they have conditions of like, they need a certain amount of sunlight, they need a certain amount of water or nitrogen oh. and things like that. Mm -hmm. But you do actually discuss that that's a possibility. Yeah. And so thinking about what would it mean for us to think about the environments and games as more than just graphical backdrops for the action that really matters, which is between player characters and enemies or NPCs. Like what would it mm -hmm. mean to have these different kinds of modeling happen? And so I think it is interesting if we think about plants as like a huge part of our biosphere, right? So much revolves mm -hmm. around plants and life's not sustainable on earth without them. It, uh, it reminds me quite a bit, we had this conversation back when we were talking about Ghost of Tsushima, right? Which 
which is such a pretty like they have such attention to the environment and yet, yet and yet it's totally boring like it's totally like <laughs> like, like it's just there right and you're kind of you're kind of like you have the moment where you're um kind of in awe of all of the all of the wavy branches and the trees and the and the sunlight and you know but it's a painting it's basically a painting um mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that sort of goes to your point about how these environments so often are just these kind of stale backdrops. Yeah, I mean, even Firewatch, which we talked about, which is great in so many ways, you know, because of various um, like limits on memory and other things like the artist um, Jane Eng really just designed like 14 unique species of trees that are just instanced all over. And, um, and like if you, once you learn to see it, you can't unsee it. So I can't even play that game now without just noticing that all the pines are the same. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like if you look really, you can look really closely. It's like they have the exact same broken snags. And there are all these like tricks that designers do to make it look real if you're just like passing by. So like they're very fully realized on the front side and like down close to the ground where the player is versus up high. And um and so I actually think I might be writing my next book about stuff like this, about digital assets, mm. um, about asset modeling, um, because the, the work that I did on um, vegetation modeling, which I did not think was going to be that interesting, <laughs> actually turned <laughs> out to be really fascinating. I was like, wow, this one company in the Carolinas, Speed Tree, is literally making um, trees for everything from cinema to TV, to like high quality TV, like Game of Thrones, to mm. AAA games, to architectural visualizations. And we're getting to this point where it's like um, a large proportion of the trees that some people might actually see are probably CGI oh, <laughs> created wow. by this very select group of companies. And like, you, like you're saying is, you know, they're beautiful, but they don't, they're not actually very responsive and they're not um, all that botanically um, accurate or botanically interesting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. and they're also insanely expensive. <laughs> so it's like, you got to set aside like a very large budget for trees. Um, yeah, so it's, it's you know, I want to do that not only with vegetation, but also things like, um, like water or clouds and just like really think about how like the natural world is, is being translated into these environments that aren't just mm. games, yeah, I mean, this is maybe a bit of a side note, but, uh, you know, I was thinking, of, you mentioned Firewatch, and I was thinking, oh, what's the last thing Campo Santo, the team that did it, uh, has made? And, and it turns out, you know, and I had forgotten about this, but it was Half-Life Alex. They mm. were they were very important for actually finishing up this virtual reality game, um, and they, in fact, put their other game uh, that they had been working on, the name of which I'm forgetting now, but I know, I think was I've set in too. Egypt. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. it's set in Egypt. That's all I remember. But they put that on an indefinite hold to be a support studio uh, working so for they Valve. they got acquired, yeah. Yeah, they got acquired right. by Valve. And, but what it made me think of is, I wonder about the potential for virtual reality with some mm. of what you're talking about. Do you see virtual reality as having a special potential? I, I have to admit a certain kind of 
um, <laughs> reluctance to play VR, mostly as a parent who like, you know, I can barely get away with playing amount of games I do already. Like if I put yeah. a headset on, I think I'm just going to get in trouble uh, yeah. with my family because, because I'm really like, you know, not there. Uh, but, but I'm wondering if you've thought uh, about some of that potential. Oh, definitely. I, I think VR is fun to play with and to demo, but it's I'm, I still have a healthy skepticism. And this, you know, I do, I know people who work at um, Oculus and at Facebook Oculus. And I just, um, I, I think it like takes away some of the most interesting parts of games, um, which is like playing together. You know, it's like VR isn't at the point where it's really, it makes sense to, it doesn't have that communal experience. And um, I think a lot of gameplay right now is about spectatorship. It's not even about playing games. It's about watching other people play games. <laughs> and so VR doesn't have that same satisfaction either. So the ability to sort of look over the shoulder, uh, yeah, you could yeah. do that to some extent, but um, yeah, it's, um, I think Anne Balsamo wrote a long time ago that watching someone in, be in a VR rig is like watching infantile regression <laughs> because it's just like, you know, they're just like, what's going on? You know, there's no awareness. And so it's like kind of the anti-environmental setup because there's just like a total lack of environmental awareness um, when you're enclosed in that space instead. And I, I don't know, like I, I played a little with the Oculus. I have a lot of like balance issues that sort of go along with that. Mm -hmm. uh just motion sickness background. yeah totally i i and get motion I, I do have the vr motion sickness too and uh, so the gender thing also bugs me because you know women apparently tend to get more vr motion sickness than men and this is something they didn't discover until very late in the development process so it's like hmm. good job well, and then, <laughs> but then also like there was this weird sort of and i don't know i only played it the once but there, there was they they loaded up so I I I tried VR at 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 our university because we had a an extra set in our digital humanities lab right and um they brought up this game or and it was a form of social media like you could go to these rooms and there was like a party room and there were other people there and these people would just talk to me be like hey how's it going and I don't know these <laughs> I don't know these people. I don't think <laughs> random people on this VR software. And so like, <laughs> it's so fascinating to think about like, well, what is community in a situation like this? Because like, I'm not, these aren't my friends. They're not people that I want to <laughs> hang out with in game, right? Like they're just these random people. <laughs> I guess there is some social functionality. I mean, I'm sure there will be, I'm sure people will find a way to use this. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I know enough about media history that I'm skeptical because I think back to like the mid mid 20th century efforts to have like, you know, smell o vision, that kind of stuff <laughs> like the, um, you know, or like the, you know, giant widescreen panoramas and um, I don't know. <laughs> I think at this point, it's very clear that like we have enough the like, you know, to sort of keep ratcheting up the technological sophistication may not be the best way to go. <laughs> right, right. Um, so you've this is another part of your another part of your work has been involved in doing uh, design cult consulting for projects that bring together ecology and gaming. Mm. Um, so how did you get into that kind of work? Um, and 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 what challenges have you had just sort of bringing together scholarly and design work in your, yeah. in your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if I'd call myself a consultant, but I think 
I had the experience as a grad student, I was able to work with um, a professor at Berkeley who was known for um, an alternate reality game about air pollution called Black Cloud that got funded by um, the, I think it's MacArthur, like digital media and learning grant. Um, and so we, we started on another one that was never realized um, about asthma in the Central Valley of California. And it's like, when you think of like the thing that is least fun to make into a game, <laughs> it's like, yeah, the asthma ep epidemic in the San Joaquin Valley. <laughs> but, you know, um, so, but it, you know, it was, I actually found it really useful because we did field work. Like we went to talk to community stakeholders and I think the more, um, sorry, I live near an airport. So that's what you're hearing. Um, the more the game developers like think about meaningful ties to place into real communities, I think that could be really wonderful. Like the the games of um, uh, Eline Media, like the indigenous owned, like thinking about um, those ties would be useful. Um, but I think there are some real challenges in the sort of academic industry interface. And this is, I'm, I've been trying to reach out more and participate in these groups that have a lot of developers and designers in them. And I think, um, it is, it still just remains like a difficult hurdle because who has time to keep abreast of all the scholarship if you're actually uh -huh. making things uh -huh. and you're in, uh -huh. you're in crunch time <laughs> uh -huh. um, or you need to, you know, um, feed a family or something like that. But um, I still think it's an effort worth making. And I think that um, the more we can encourage people who are those hybrid academics that are like theory practitioners, <laughs> um, if the more we can encourage that too, I think it could be health healthy to have um, games like uh, like Misha Cardenas's Sinsol that is out now about mm. this experience of living through forest fire. So you know, I think you know, um, much much work remains to be done. <laughs> so that's, I mean. We don't want to keep you too long, but maybe the last question we could ask, uh, and you can totally punt that and or turn it into something else because I think it's probably a hard <laughs> question. But if all you right. did have all of these material resources, either as a consultant or as a game designer, do you have a game that you would imagine making? Do you have this kind of uh, sort of ideal game that's kind of floated in the back of your mind at all, or maybe even just a mechanic or two? Mm, yeah. Um... I think I, I I always have lots of random pet ideas, um, and uh, I can't think of one like right now, which is sad. <laughs> but I will. I guess I will say that um, I did try to make one with a grad student of mine who um, is now back in South Korea. Um, but we made one about um, wildlife mitigation techniques. Again, see you see how sexy the pitch sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would never make it in one of those innovator challenges. <laughs> 30 seconds but, on an elevator with a yeah, CEO. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we have some video game luminaries here, like um, EA's um, Trip Hawkins lives in the neighborhood. But, um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a game about how do you modify human infrastructure so that other species can flourish with you? And the thing that makes it really challenging is that um, most of what you do is like you don't do things. Like you turn off lights or you um, drive more slowly on the road at night. <laughs> uh -huh. so, so you don't whack the deer, you know, that's crossing at twilight. Um, so, yeah, I just I kind of love, uh, you know, occupying this absurd zone um, and just like constantly trying to figure out what will work, uh, you know, and kind of create some runaway hit, hopefully. <laughs> 
right? Where you just do these, these, well, it turns out it's more fun to hit the deer in the game that we made, you know? Um, so, you know, we need some play testing and, or we could make the next, um, you know, killer app that's about hitting deer at twilight that will make you reflect more about. <laughs> Here we go, just reverse it. Human wildlife collisions. The, you know, billion dollars we spend a year on human wildlife collisions or whatever. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I like that the future is in maybe trying to figure out how we can gamify infrastructure in a lot of ways because you know we definitely we definitely need to work on work on infrastructure in the u.s and think about this but yeah um, well alinda thank you so much for taking the time out of your i'm sure very busy life uh to thank you was this was really great fun. thank you it was fun it's always a, a pleasure to, to chat with other scholars and gamers mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.